Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day and welcome to this episode of Democracy Sausage from the majestic grounds, the eclectic grounds of the ANU. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. Now, speaking of eclectic, Australia could conceivably have three different submarines in operation at the same time in the early 2040s. It's a little way from now, that's true. That would be the existing conventionally powered Collins-class boats, of which we have six, and four or five of the nuclear-powered Virginia-class US submarines described as the apex predators of the sea by enthusiasts, which basically means most journalists, it seems. And finally, an as-yet-not-designed British prototype nuclear-powered boat to be called SSN AUKUS. If you've followed the debate in recent days, it's not hard to conclude that this is all perfectly logical and prudent, unless, that is, you listen to a couple of XPMs, Paul Keating and Malcolm Turnbull. Joining me to discuss this complicated but crucial issue is Australia's preeminent defence and strategic policy thinker, author of countless books and essays on the strategic environment and the implications of the emergence of China to rival America and all those other issues in the region, is ANU Professor Hugh White. Hugh, welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Nice to be with you, Mark. Yeah, it's great to have you here, and particularly pertinent at the moment, because as as uh, as uh, I say in that introduction, uh, there's just so much happening in this space at the moment. Australia's committed to this complicated deal. We probably won't end up with three uh, subs in operation at the same time, but but when that was put to Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, uh, on seven thirty just a night or two ago, uh, he he didn't specifically rule that out. It is sort of possible with the phasing of these things, things can be running late or 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 have other complications. But we're certainly going to, at a minimum, have two different types of, right. of submarines, uh, even leaving the Collins out of it. We're going yep. to have the, the, the American one and the new British one, yep. which should come on stream, could, should be coming to service in the early 2040s if yep. all things go to plan, which almost never Which happens. they won't. I promise you they won't. <laughs> so... Does this make sense to you? Look, I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it makes sense as a piece of um, defence acquisition administration. I don't think it makes sense strategically or operationally either. I mean, you could say that one of the first laws of project management is the more more complicated you make things, the more moving parts there are, the more likely it is the whole thing will fall over. And just to pick up on two of a range of different uh, complexities in the in the arrangements that were announced on Tuesday, which looked to me very worrying, 
The first is that it does absolutely the whole structure that we uh, that we upgrade the, the the columns, that they then continue past their originally intended service life. Then the Americans provide us with the Virginia class boats, which which we buy from them, and then they fill in the gap until the new British boats, the AUKUS boats, come into service. And just two of the two of the many ways in which that could go wrong is that what the, the first thing that means is that. The Royal Australian Navy has to learn how to operate nuclear boats 10 years earlier than the original AUKUS plan envisaged. Mm Because the original AUKUS plan was that we wouldn't start getting nuclear-powered boats uh, until uh, sometime in the very late 30s or early 40s. So until the new vessel, exactly, the, the one until, that we're until about, the AUKUS vessel, yeah. the, the the British vessel in inverted commas comes into line. Uh, and, and now we're going to apparently start operating. Uh, Virginia class SSNs, very big, very advanced, very complicated submarines, uh, in our own navy, from according to the plan, at twenty thirty three. Now that requires the, the navy itself and a whole lot of other institutions to develop the expertise for what they're calling nuclear stewardship, which is very, very demanding. I mean, you know, we always got to remember these are nuclear reactors in these things, and when they're going say- to be sitting in the middle of, a, of, of, of of Australian cities like Perth. Uh, they've really got to get it right 100% of the time. Yeah. And that's and that's a very big ask. So the, I think the, that, that's a real problem in itself. These reactors in, in the Virginia class, one of the selling points, that is the public selling points, perhaps it was a, literally a selling point between the US and Australia as well, but is that they are sealed reactors for the life of the vessel. Um, so does that give you any comfort? Uh, because you know, sealed sounds pretty reassuring. They don't have to be opened up. There's not actually tinkering well, around. Or- well, that is. I mean, that is that is significant. It's it's significant to from the maintenance point of view, uh, and it's significant from the proliferation point of view. Um, although that's a very significant issue in itself that mm. deserves further examination. Uh, but it but it doesn't mean that there's not some very very demanding skills that have to be acquired because you know these 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 reactors have got to be supported they've got to be monitored they've got to be managed and the and fact when you that say supported that, that means cooled for example yeah, well right? yes exactly yeah. and and um uh, and just because they're sealed doesn't mean they can't go wrong mm. and if they go really wrong uh, you know you're talking about a meltdown this this could be a really significant. A really significant disaster, and so now you know the the, the advocates would say that uh, there haven't been any major accidents on either a British or an American nuclear-powered submarine in the now you know 50, 60 years since they started operating them, and that's true. It's a little bit cheeky to say, as the government has tended to imply, there haven't been any problems at all. In fact, there have been a whole litany of radioactive relevant issues with uh, with uh, nuclear-powered boats from both countries over the years. And so that's not to say that I think this is a complete you know, showstopper. It is to say that it's a very demanding thing. And, and what the government has now decided is instead of giving the Navy and the rest of the country 20 years to acquire those skills... We're we're supposed to get them in ten years, so that that so that's that's a big risk. The second big risk you could identify is that it presupposes that that ten years from now, in whatever the strategic circumstances are, ten years from now, the United States will actually be willing to sell us their boats, and that's a very big ask because uh, no one's t- no one's suggesting the government, in fact, explicitly ruling out the idea that the Americans are going to have more boats available. There's not the Americans are going to build extra boats for us. They're going to take three of the Virginia class boats initially three, and as you mentioned, potentially four or five, 
out of their order of battle and pass them to Australia. Now, it's one thing for the guys in the White House to sign up to that now. Uh, for, the, for the US, for a future US administration, potentially facing an even more adversarial relationship with Russia and an even tougher Cold War with China 10 years from now, for them to go uh, go ahead with that deal seems to me to be highly problematic. I think mm. the chances of that falling over, got to say it's 50%. And so then, you know, then what do we do? Um, and, and then on top of that, there's a whole lot of questions about the about the development of the Orcas boat, because the British uh, are really only just at the beginning of this process of designing this new boat, um, and designing a new nuclear powered submarine is a very long and complex process. The schedule that was announced on Tuesday suggests that they, that the British are going to start cutting steel, building their new boats to this design by the end of the decade. That's seven years away or less. That seems very quick. And they're, and they're going to have the new boat in service a decade after that. I don't think any nuclear submarine has ever been designed, developed and brought into service, built and brought into service that quickly. Mm. And, uh, you know, going back to what we touched in <laughs> earlier, you know, there's a kind of, a kind of Murphy's Law here it, that applies to submarines more perhaps than anything else on Earth, and that is if something is going to go can go wrong with a submarine project, it will. Yeah. Uh, and so I think what we're doing is 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 basing uh, the 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 future of our submarine capability on a whole lot of of um, steps in a process, each one of which is very risky. Um, and of course, the question you've got to ask at the bottom of it is, do we need to do this? Mm. Is it necess- is this the is this the best or the only way for Australia to acquire the submarine capabilities we need in the decades ahead? And my big reservation about this whole project is that I don't think we need to go through this stuff. I think I think there are other ways for us to get submarines which are cheaper, quicker, less risky, less demanding. Well, and that goes to to, to the whole uh, policy, uh, the basis of the policy in in the beginning. You know, the 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 acquisition of these things is is uh, pursuant to whatever that policy is. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and so we can have that debate, and I think we'll come to that in a minute. But just going back for a moment to the point about the U.S. and the uh, them handing over or selling us those submarines. Um, you quite rightly point out that uh, administrations can change, the strategic environment could worsen. Uh, you know, how likely are they to want to cede some of their capacity? And one of the uncomfortable answers, which goes to this other nagging question, which is the one about sovereignty, yes. is that they are perhaps prepared to do it if they have a great deal of influence over the the, the deployment of our yeah. nuclear submarines, yeah. which is yeah. another way of saying we are in some effective manner, partly under their command, or uh, at least... Well, let me... I think that is that is exactly right. I'd put it a bit differently. And that is that there is, so far as I can see, absolutely no way that any US administration would sell their scarce nuclear-powered uh, attack submarines, of which they have fewer than they need, that they would sell them to us unless they were absolutely sure that in the event of a major conflict in Asia, conflict with China, that Australia's submarines would be available to them. Right. So and they wouldn't it, be sitting in port, for example. They'd be. Oh no, no, yeah. no, no, no. That they would, they would be right up there on the front line. Mm. Um, it, I mean, it just makes no sense for the United States 
to do this unless they're absolutely sure that the submarines will be available. Even then, it's a sacrifice for them because what it means is that instead of the submarines being crewed by American crews backed by American support systems, which have been supporting these submarines forever and really know how to do it, these submarines are going to be crewed by Australians who with the best will in the world are going to be a bit, you know, have their trainer wheels on. Green, yeah. And uh, And so, you know, they're not going to be as effective. So it's a, it's a huge thing for America to do, even if they are sure we'll be there. Um, it, I, I think if they weren't sure we would be there, they just wouldn't even contemplate it. And, you know, to that extent, I think, um, you, you know, the, the, the whole rationale for this from America's point of view presupposes that they agree with Peter Dutton when Peter Dutton said that it's inconceivable that Australia mm. would not go to war to support the United States over against Taiwan. China over Taiwan. Um, you know, Peter Dutton thinks that, and so must the guys in the White House. Otherwise, they wouldn't be dreaming of this deal. And, and even that strategic outlook has changed with Biden's messaging on this because yes. the policy of strategic ambiguity, he's sort of trodden all over that a few I mean, times now. No, no, and he, I think he, the first time the White House tried to sort of clean it up a bit, but they've sort of, my impression is that essentially he's just gone and done it again. And Well, I, been, I, think, I think what they've very deliberately done there, well, there's two possibilities. Four times now, Biden has said Ameri unambiguously America would defend Taiwan if China attacks. Mm. That does violate what's still supposed to be America's formal policy of strategic ambiguity, in which they just say, we, we're not saying what we're yeah, going to do. Yeah. Now, there's two possibilities. Either, either Biden screwed up four times on the trot, not Possible. impossible, <laughs> or they're doing something halfway clever. That is, the formal policy is still there, so the Chinese can't bitch and moan about it. But nudge, nudge, wink, wink, the president keeps on saying the opposite. And I, th I think the only conclusion you can draw is that they really are walking away from a strategic ambiguity. They are declaring a determination. and that Yeah, because it's not like the – I mean, strategic ambiguity is the policy, right? Yeah, that's right. right. It's but, not like the policy is we will defend and then and then some they're, – they're introducing qualifications no, that, that, against well, that, it. That, that, it's that's the right. other way although, around. Although well, you might say that strategic ambiguity is the policy that's printed in the formal documents. But if the president of the United States says four times something different, that starts to sound like it's really the policy, doesn't it? Well, yeah, and, and I suppose that's my point. I mean, strategic amb ambiguity, if it's your policy, right? I mean, let's think about what ambiguity mm. means. It means mm. that you can't quite discern what that's the right. policy is. That's right. not clear. Yeah. He's bringing clarity yeah. to he's, it. He's bringing clarity to it. And there's a reason why they're doing that. Um, you know, the Washington is worried that uh, as China's military power grows, its confidence in its ability to deter the United States from intervening in... in um, uh, in support of Taiwan grows because the cost and risk to the United States of doing that against a more capable Chinese adversary uh, is greater. And they therefore think that they have to be clearer in saying that they're going to do it in order to persuade the Chinese not to give it a try. Now, you can pick a few holes in that as far as deterrence theory is concerned, but you can see why that you can see why the Americans are doing this. But what it means for us is that, um, you know, the, the, the probability of the Chinese using armed force against Taiwan is not low. I'm, I'm certainly not one of those who think it's a certainty, um, but it's, it's, it's a very serious possibility. And the possibility, if you believe what Biden says, the possibility that if that happens, the United States will act militarily is quite high. And the chances that if that happens, they expect Australia to bring our submarines forward is not quite high. It's a certainty. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and not just our submarines, other aspects of our capability. So the strategic context of this um, 
is that by is that what we what we're going to pay for when we take delivery of of American Virginia class submarines is we're not going to just pay whatever the purchase price is, and the government won't say what that is, by the way, but we're we're certainly going to hold over, hand over some serious dollars, yeah. but we're also going to pay with a promise to go to war against China. Mm. Now people might say we're going to need to do that any, anyway. I don't agree with that. I think that's a mistaken policy for you know reasons we've discussed before. Yeah. But I think the um, uh, what it means is that you know you can't separate AUKUS from a strategic environment in which the, the Americans are looking uh, to reinforce the alliance with Australia and to commit Australia more deeply than we've ever been committed before to supporting them in a role in a war with a major power. It's worth remembering that Australia has gone to war alongside the United States against all sorts of minor powers since, well, since, since 1945. Mm. Um, you know, we've gone to Iraq, we've gone to Afghanistan, we went to Vietnam and so on. But the last time we went to war against a major power was in 1941 or mm. when they joined us in war in 1941. Yeah, we so, there, you know, yeah. we, and, and all through the Cold War, for example, we never committed ourselves to go to war alongside America against the Soviet Union or, for that matter, against communist China. As it then was in a sort of you know it's aggressive, it's aggressive mode. So this is a very significant transformation of the nature of our alliance with the United States. Mm. In, in and AUKUS is you know in a sense people are thinking that AUKUS is really about submarines, but but when uh, you know Anthony Albanese says as he often does that AUKUS is about a lot more than submarines, he literally means it. He's this right, is yeah. really about the alliance. Yeah. Uh, and if you if you go to Washington, it's certainly about the alliance. They don't really care about our submarine capability. What they deeply care about is tying Australia into their confrontation, their containment strategy against China as tightly as they can. And that's actually, I think, what they're in the process of succeeding doing. And this is one of Paul Keating's problems, exactly. with it, right? He's saying essentially, and the words that he used when he was speaking at the press club recently was uh, along the lines of saying the, the US doesn't have any stake in the Asian region. It doesn't, I think he described it as doesn't own any territory in metropolitan Asia. Um, and this essentially allows them to forward project that power with our assistance and indeed with our wallet. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, I think as 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 usual, I wouldn't necessarily put it quite the way Paul puts it, but I do think uh, there's a very important point there. That is the, um, uh, the, the 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 nature of the U.S. stake in the Western Pacific is not something we can take for granted. America has been the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific really since the turn of the last century, mm. since 1899, roughly speaking. Um, and we, we're used to thinking of that as a permanent state of affairs. And so are the Americans, I might say. And so they're committed to the idea that whatever happens, they're going to have to preserve that, which means whatever happens, they're going to have to resist China's challenge because China wants to take its place. Um, uh, but of course, it doesn't have the power that it used to have because in the old days, America's economy was so much bigger than China's that there wasn't even a comparison. These days, actually, on, on some measures, on PPP measures, China's economy is already bigger than America's. That translates directly into national power. That translates directly into the, the cost and risk that America has to run to preserve its position in East Asia. And, you know, the, the, the thought that's underlying Keating's position is that the Americans, in order to sustain that position, need to bring people like Australia online uh, in order to support their position. But it's in, in the long run, if they want to, they can walk away from the region because mm. their home's on the other side of the Pacific, which is yeah. a very wide body of water. It is. We, we can't. No, that's right. And, so we, you know, we, 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 there is no option for us 
but to find a way to live in whatever Asia emerges from the present turmoil. America doesn't have to find a way to live in that Asia. America can can go back to Hawaii. And I, mm. on my own judgment is that in the long run, that's what it will probably do. The question is just whether it does it <laughs> by, by peacefully withdrawing or by starting a war with China that ends up not being able to win. It has big assets in the region, doesn't it? I mean, it has uh, you know, military bases it, in the Philippines, it, in Japan. Well, well it, it's actually re- re- it's, it appears to be regaining some military access to the Philippines. It got, has big assets in Japan. But remember, you don't want to put the cart before the horse in this business. The reason it has those assets is that it wants to develop its it, to defend and preserve its position as a leading regional power. Mm. If it decides that it doesn't really care about remaining a re- leading regional power, then it doesn't need those assets, and it's not that big a sacrifice to walk away from them. So, you know, of course, I'm not saying there aren't a lot of things that hold America into Asia, but as the costs and risks of preserving its position in Asia go up as China's power grows, then it becomes more and more a question whether or not the the strength of America's equities in the region are, are big enough to justify those costs and risks. And back when China had an economy that was smaller than Australia's, didn't matter. But now that China has a very big economy and a very powerful military and uh, a whole lot of nuclear weapons and getting more and the capacity to destroy American cities if it all goes pear-shaped, and you've always got to remember that the nuclear prospect hangs in the background to all of this stuff, then um, uh, I think the chances that America will end up not sticking around, are quite high. But in the meantime, what they're trying to do is to bolster their position by dragging their allies in. And they're now demanding, it's as simple as this, they are now demanding things of Australia, which they have never demanded of us before. And AUKUS is very much the sort of the you know, the lock on that. Um, and Keating's complaint, one of his central complaints, really, if you unpick, if you get sort mm. of pick between the words, is that is that he doesn't feel like Australia has understood this debate, right. and that and that the new Australian government, the new yes. Labor government, a yeah. party, you know, his own party, his own, has yeah. not embraced all of the detail and had the proper, you know, mm. gone through the proper considerations and a public mm. debate around mm. what the implications are here. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. And although I wouldn't use Paul Keating's language, I think his concern is correct. I mean, it's a it it's it's a bit rich when his uh, when the present Labor government hits back at Keating's comments by saying that Keating us doesn't understand how the world has changed. Actually, I think it's they who don't understand how the world's changed because they still think America's the dominant power in East Asia and going to remain so forever. Now, back in Keating's day, that was true. In the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, America was so far and away the most powerful country in the Western Pacific that it didn't matter, mm. and that's why it made so much sense for the Hawke and Keating governments to support the US so you know, unreservedly as they did. But today, that's changed completely. The, the, the balance of wealth and power between the United States and China has shifted radically in the last couple of decades. But the present policy of this government, and for that matter their predecessors, presupposes that America is going to remain the dominant power in Asia as far ahead as we can see. And that, that, that I think, is what really... Uh, Keating is trying to draw people's attention to, and he, of course, was you know a famous, as you say, he's got a turn of phrase and uh, puts things somewhat more bluntly more than, than you and I might. Yes. That's <laughs> right. But one of his um, famous policy objectives was security in Asia, not security right. from Asia. Yes. He's still prosecuting that no. point, and the games come to him. I guess yes. he'd put it. In no, those no, that's, that that that's exactly right. I mean that 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 old idea which Hawke had too. I might say that Australia should look for its security not from Asia, 
but in Asia. It's all about the idea that we couldn't, over the long term, rely on the fact that our security would always be guaranteed by by Anglo-Saxon outside powers, mm. the British and the Americans, being there to make Asia safe for us. We would have to learn to make our own way in an Asia that was not dominated by outside powers because it was clear to Hawke and Keating that these guys, that these countries were always going to grow. Eventually, we didn't know when, but eventually, I mean, I was working with them in those days, so I sort of, you know, I lived through this. We, we, we knew that eventually... Uh, we were going to have to live in an Asia in which the, the the regional powers could really shape the way the whole region worked and that that was going to be a completely new circumstance for us. Now, that's happened faster than we expected, but, you know, Keating's crusade, if you like, is to say to people that, you know, this has happened and we now have to really adjust our expectations of America and our approach to the region to, to in, in, in line with that new reality. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage. I'm talking with Professor Hugh White, Australia's preeminent uh, strategic and defence intellectual. Uh, and um, we were just discussing about you know the, the the whole notion of where Australia is and the changing uh, power dynamics of our region, and I suppose globally and what that might mean. Uh, on the question of interoperability, mm. uh, which has been a big selling point of of having these these Virginia class subs that they'll use. That, that, that we will have uh, integration, and this will be the case with the SSN as well, apparently, mm -hmm. but, but certainly in the first stage of this, that uh, there'll be uh, you know, this ability for the coordination, for the collaboration between uh, the defence forces of these three mm -hmm. Anglophone powers. Um, doesn't that sort of, in a sense, imply uh, that we are that there will be some surrender of sovereignty. I mean, they talk about we'll have the same, it'll have the same equipment, yeah. the same terminology, I think was yes, a, a term yes, I heard someone yes, use. Yes, yes. Um, you know, they, they, they'll be more familiar with the capacities and, and uh, properties of the, of the vessels that are even under Australian command than we are, that is the US. Well, that, that's, that's certainly true. That's not a new situation for us, of course. I mean, we've been buying high-tech uh, military equipment from the, from the Americans and, for that matter, before that, from the British for a long time now. And that's always brings with it a degree of interoperability. That is that, you know, if you're flying F-18s and they're flying F-18s, uh, then you know you can draw your your spares out of their spare stockpile and vice versa, mm -hmm. uh, and and in recent years, decades even, that's evolved to the point where um, 
you know, my, my high-tech battle management systems can talk to your high-tech battle management systems, so my radar can pick up an adversary out there and I can fire a missile. You can fire a mm. missile from your ship on the bearing d defined by my radar and that sort of thing. Now, look, I don't have any problem with that because it's never seemed to me a bad idea to be prepared to fight with allies where you choose to do so. Because that's essentially because what largely that, happens, that, right? That, Once that, you're in that's, the hot That's war. what largely happens, right. and that's that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But it's a completely different situation to find yourself in in a predicament where you really have locked yourself in completely. You've 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 given the Americans to understand that in the event of of a of a conflict, you will definitely, definitely be there. And particularly I think that's a dangerous thing to do in a situation where this is not this is not like Iraq or Afghanistan. It's not even like Vietnam. A war with the, between America and China over Taiwan w would be World War Three. It mm. would be the biggest. It would be for sure, and by far the biggest war the world has seen since 1945. And it would have a very good chance of being a nuclear war. This is, you know, this will be the first major war between nuclear powers. It's a war in which neither side, I think, has the capacity to win. A conventional victory that is to you know win on the conventional battlefield, and we see the and great care that is being taken at the moment in the case of uh, Ukraine. Well, yeah, to, that, to not have to, to prevent direct that exactly, yeah. and 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 so you know the the whole construct of coming to war to going to war to defend Taiwan, where America hasn't gone to war to defend um, Ukraine. Uh, it precisely presupposes that America is prepared to run the very high risk of a nuclear exchange with China in the way it's not prepared to do with 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 Russia. Well, Russia has more nukes than China, but that you know that's the good news, I guess. The bad news is the Chinese can still destroy five or ten U.S. cities. It can still make it the worst day in America's history by twenty orders of magnitude. Mm. Uh, you know, I I I I mean, I'm I'm bewildered by how. A nonchalant American policymakers seem to be about the, about that, and and coming back to us, you know what strikes me is that when Australian policymakers accept the fact, as they seem to do, that supporting America in a war with China over Taiwan has become has become you know almost automatic, inconceivable that we wouldn't. Um, we're committing ourselves to a war whose scale we don't understand, mm. and more to the point. Uh, that we're very unlikely to win. I mean, you know, Australia's concept of war, particularly a major war, is strongly shaped by the fact that we've tended to be on the winning side. But there is absolutely no reason to expect America to win a war with China over Taiwan. Uh, it, it's the, China, the Chinese have got very capable military forces. They're much closer to the battle space and they care more. Mm. No, they've got more resolve. And we see how much care actually matters oh, in yeah. the Ukraine, oh, no. for example. Oh, exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. Resolve really matters. Yeah. Um, you know, who's got more at stake? Mm. And people might say, oh, well, maybe the Taiwanese will defend themselves. No. No, no. It's, uh, you know, the, 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 the imbalance of forces and capabilities between China and Taiwan is far, far, far greater than the imbalance of forces between Russia and Ukraine. So I, I think, you know, I think it's, it's a very... Um, uh, it's 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 very important that we recognise how much more we're committing as we go into Orcas than we've committed in the past where we've gone into the sort of interoperability we've had and have been developing for years. Yeah. Now, what what how much should we care about how Beijing views this and what do you think is communicated by it? You made the point before I described these submarines as attack submarines. Mm. Um as I said in the introduction, they're sometimes described as the predators, apex predators mm -hmm. of the sea. Um, 
it doesn't look that they're not a defensive looking weapon. Now, I know mm. part mm. of deterrence mm. is about having capability mm. and capability to strike at mm. your enemies, and that has a somewhat sobering mm. effect on on their aggression or adventurism. But are we changing the sort of balance of of um, of power and the probability of war by by arming in this way? Uh, look, I I don't think so. Submarines are um, of are aggressive operationally. They're not necessarily aggressive strategically. That is, um, uh, you know, a, a, a submarine is a way of, of of going out and taking the battle. To the other guy, um, but nobody's ever in, nobody's ever invaded another country with submarines, right? Right, um, and although you can use submarines to to launch air attacks on other countries by using missiles, actually, submarines are a very inefficient way of delivering missiles. But they can, the American but, but, ones can launch to oh, well, nuclear missiles. Well, right? Oh well, that yes, and that's a whole different category. I yeah, mean, American sure. submarines, the, the nuclear ballistic missile submarines mm. are, a whole, are in a whole different category. Mm. Right, but 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 the the, um, the the sort of submarines we get, which would have a lot of missiles, but which they'll be conventionally armed, they that can be used for attacking another country's homeland. But that's that's not their primary role. Their primary role is to find and sink other countries' ships or other countries' submarines. Right. And and so you can see that as being strategically defensive, even if it's operationally offensive. You know, you're going out there finding the other guy's ship and sinking it. Um, but look, I think the you know the broader point there is that. The advocates of this propose that it's that we're enhancing deterrence of China. That we're as because we're going to be tougher, mm. we're going to be better armed. The Chinese will be more reluctant to take us on, and and that that's a that's a big advantage from our point of view. Um, I, I I contest that primarily because of the timeframes involved. Uh, the, the way that the way the the project was unfolded to us uh, a few days ago. Suggest that there's going to be no actual net increase in the number of submarines available to our side, right. you know, the mm. British, the Americans, and the Australians together. There's going to be no net increase in that number until well into the 2040s. Until so, AUKUS submarines come on stream. Yes, yeah. and qu quite a few of them actually, because our, our Collins boats are going to start paying off and so mm. on. Mm. So there's actually going to be no there's going to be no overall increase in the submarine capability of the three of the three partners in the Western Pacific until something like 20 or maybe 25 years away, even if the project all goes according to plan, which, which it won't. we discussed before, it won't. <laughs> um, and, and so that's fine. The Chinese are sitting up there in, in Beijing thinking, oh, wow, they're going to have more submarines in 25 years' time. No, that, that's, that's too late. I mean, the China we have to deter is the China of today and five years from now and 10 years from now. Uh, I, I, I don't think it makes a very significant difference. Well, I suppose an obvious question, though, that, that flows from that is, does it possibly accelerate? Do, do they see a closing window if they are going to make a strategic move? Uh, look, um, I think actually the, the, that would be a legitimate concern if we were going to, if we, and I don't just mean Australia, the, the coalition, was going to build up its forces faster. But the fact is that the Chinese are building submarines faster than than us and the Americans put together, mm. and there's no particular reason for them to stop. Um, they've got they've got plenty of budget, um, and so in the longer term, nothing we have done so far, and I mean nothing we Australia, mm -hmm. including AUKUS, but nothing the Americans, or for that matter, the British are doing, uh, is going to enhance our our capacity to defeat the Chinese in a war over, say, Taiwan, 
and therefore I think our deterrent position in the longer term is weakening, not strengthening, and and AUKUS won't stop that. So I think on the operational level, I don't think I don't think this is going to be keeping the guys in Beijing awake at night. On the other hand, strategically, it does reaffirm to the Chinese that Australia is a hundred percent committed to supporting America in whatever America tries to do to contain China. Now, that's not in itself a reason we shouldn't do it. If that was in our Australia's best interest, then we should do it. I mean, we're not, we're not building our defence policy to please the Chinese. But I do think it's important that we, that we recognise that what we're doing by doing this is in t- contributing to the intensification of the strategic rivalry between the US and China, which is already intensifying very worryingly. Uh, we can see the sort of, you know, the it's almost slightly absurd goings on around the balloon incursion into yes. American territory. We can see uh, the language we, we've seen out of Beijing recently, the, the language that, uh, that Xi Jinping used at the National People's Congress, the language that the new foreign minister used. I mean, this is a quite perceptible and I think significant escalation in Chinese rhetoric and you're getting answering rhetoric from the United States, even though Biden's talking about building guardrails so you can have competition without conflict. No, nothing's coming of that. Mm. So I think the risk for us is that the Chinese will will not be deterred militarily by the fear of our, you know, m- mighty submarine fleet, but they but they but they will be further convinced that there is no way forward for them to achieve their objectives other than by pushing harder, um, militarily harder, and uh, so and, I and think presumably it emboldens the hawks. Oh, in oh, China oh yes, well, as it, well, it yeah. certainly does. I mean, the, the, the hawks in China say, look, you know, we we can't deal with these guys. Mm. They're determined to preserve U.S. primacy, even if mm. that means going to war with us. So we've got to be prepared to go to war with them. Mm. Um, I mean, this is this is how wars start. So I think um, I, I don't think we should, for a moment, say we shouldn't do this because it might irritate the Chinese. But I do think it would be very unwise for us not to actually just reflect on how does this affect the 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 trajectory of the escalating rivalry between the US and China and is it really in our interest to do that now you know i i i think one of the reasons why i think uh, there are much better ways for australia to approach the, the replacement of the collins than the approach we're taking through the AUKUS arrangement is that uh, an approach which emphasized much more australia's determination to use its forces to defend itself independently from a major Asian power like China, if the Chinese start to throw their weight around, would be would be less escalatory of the broader strategic uh, competition in Asia than doing what we're doing, which is saying we're building our submarines to support the United States in preventing China going where China wants yeah. to go. Uh, so yeah. I think it's a it's a matter of whether 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 we seem to be building our forces to defend ourselves or building our forces to support America's strategic agenda in relation to China, which I don't think is in our interests. And and greater self-reliance by Australia in a defensive capacity is in the US interest anyway, but it but it's much more able to be it, it, it's explained. Much, it's much exactly it's yeah. much it's much less escalatory. Mm. Um and so um you know I think that is uh, that is the key that that is the key difference. And you know right at the heart of that is the simple point that that I I don't think nuclear-powered submarines are the most cost-effective option for Australia. Um, you know, people talk about, as you've mentioned, people talk about them being the apex predators of the sea. I mean, it's just not true. An apex predator is something which can't be hunted by anything else in the environment. <laughs> and, and that's not true. Oh, no, you know, what, nuclear-powered submarines have real advantages, 
And in some situations, they're harder to find, but it doesn't mean they can't be found. And if they can be found, they can be sunk. Nuclear submarines would would be found and sunk in a serious war. How how much it's worth our while paying for the operational advantages that nuclear-powered submarines deliver depends a lot on what kind of operations we want to undertake. If you want to stooge right into the Chinese uh, ballistic missile submarine base in, on Hainan Island, then I'd rather go in a nuclear-powered boat. But if what you want to do is to stooge around the Java Sea or even the southern parts of the South China Sea, picking off a Chinese... Uh, amphibious task force sailing towards Papua New Guinea, for example, then a, a, a conventional boat is more cost effective. It's not necessarily more effective in itself, but it costs a quarter as much. And so you've got four times as many of them. And so they're in four times as many places. Mm. And so you've got a better chance of finding your adversary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these things, It's it's there's no such thing as a sort of a silver bullet in the defense business. It's all a matter of trading off cost and capability. And I think we've sort of fallen in love with the idea of nuclear-powered submarines as the necessary answer to Australia's strategic needs. I, I just don't think the the engineering judgments, and you know, all military operations are in the end a kind of engineering. Engineering judgment, what's the most cost-effective way of achieving the operational objectives you're trying to achieve? They, they, they just don't. They just don't stack up. I mean, they didn't stack up even if we could go and buy a nuclear-powered submarine off the shelf. But now we know that in order to acquire a nuclear-powered submarine, we have to go through this extraordinarily protracted and risky and unbelievably costly, well, no, believably costly, Mm -hmm. process that's been unfolded by the government as the AUKUS program. And, you know, you go back and say, really? Couldn't we just go back and, and buy a big number, 24 or 36 evolved versions of the Collins? That would be a perfectly capable boat. And I'm, in my opinion, it actually would be a better deterrent of China because there'd be more boats in the water sooner yeah, and, and more that, reliably. That, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, there's a, there remains a huge question as to whether we're ever going to be able to operate nuclear-powered submarines. Mm. Whereas, you know, we've learned a bit from the Collins. We, we can make nuclear, conventionally-powered submarines work. It would be, I think, I think if the guys in China would be more worried by that than they would be by AUKUS. But we've gone for gold plating instead, really. We've gone for gold plating. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Um, David Livingston, I'm not sure if you're, yes. if you're familiar with him, he has, yeah. a, has a piece in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald I read. He's a former diplomat and mm. specialist in defence and security. He says submarines are fast becoming obsolete, right? So th- this mm. is an interesting mm. proposition mm. as well, right, that you know, not, yeah. n- notwithstanding everything we've just been yeah. talking about, by the time we, these things come online, his argument. Yeah. I'll just read yeah. a, a, a section of his words. He says they're due to become obsolete uh, due to smart sea mines, ocean floor sensors, and unmanned um, underwater vehicles. Um, this is the quote, manned submarines are nearing the end of their utility in hostile waters because of developments in smart sea mines, unmanned underwater vehicles and underwater sensors. China has already made a strong start on this and will deploy them in large numbers in its coastal region and strategically important areas of the South China Sea and the East China Sea. So it's, I mean, you say it's expensive. I mean, you're right. It's extremely expensive what we're doing. It's a, it's a gargantuan investment. And what he seems to be saying is that it may these things are going to be superseded by other developments. Yeah, that the sea I'm, is becoming more transparent. He says. Yeah, I'm. I'm not as sure of that. It does depend on two things. First of all, it does depend on where you intend to operate and what you intend to do. If to use the analogy, the example I mentioned before, if 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 what you want to do is to stooge right up into the Chinese uh, ballistic missile submarine pens 
on Hainan Island, mm. then the issue of sea mines and seabed sensors and so on is a real deal because you know, that's where you're going to find very concentrated anti-submarine warfare capabilities. Um, uh, but but um, I don't for a moment think that that's the most important role for Australian submarines. The most important role for Australian submarines is to prevent an adversary projecting power by sea towards Australia. So it's defending our coastal defending perimeter our, rather now, than. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean you want to you, you, you want to sit off the you know off you know the off the, the end of the jetty off the end of the jetty exactly. <laughs> the, the the whole point about submarines is they enable you to hold the adversary's uh, shipping at risk beyond the range of your own land-based air power. Yeah. So you want to, you know, you want, for example, the classic model for Australian submarine operations is you deploy it through the archipelago across our north. Right. People have got to go, you know, adversaries have got to steam through choke points like the Sunda Strait and so on. And that's a very nice submarine hunting territory. That's why I mentioned the Java Sea before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's... Um, uh, that that in that situation, you know, the Chinese are going to find it much harder to sow a whole lot of sea mines or lay a whole lot of submarine, um, you know, sub subsurface sensor systems uh, in those sorts of areas. Uh, the the other point is that so I, I, I'm I'm not as pessimistic as he is about that. The other point is that it is just worth bearing in mind that people have been correctly recognising for a long time that. At any time, there might be a technological breakthrough, which would render the oceans transparent. Um, that you that would that would allow submarines to be seen or found or, or or whatever. And all one can say is that hasn't happened yet. Now that's not to say it won't happen, but it does make me a little bit sceptical about taking at face value the predictions that people make that submarines are mm. soon going to are soon going to be, become obsolete. The, the fact is that. Seawater sea actually is a very complex medium. It's pretty dense and it's very variable. And so, for example, you know, the, the, the superpowers worked like mad throughout the Cold War to, to squeeze every bit of data possible out of sonar. Hmm. And sonar these days is very good, but submarines are very quiet. Yeah, and so I think it's a it's a bet, you know, we're, we're, an investment in submarines is a bet that the technologists won't spring a horrible surprise in the future. It is a bet. There's no such thing as a certainty in this business, but I think it's a reasonable bet. Uh, it's it's not a bet. I'd like I'd I'd, ra I'd rather make it for a hundred billion dollars for a fleet of twenty five conventional boats than three hundred billion dollars for a fleet of eight nuclear boats. Uh, but it's, it's so it's a, you know I think it's a bit worth I think it's a bit worth taking. There is a broader point though, and that is that although I've tended to I do argue that I think as an investment in submarines is is a cost effective one for Australia. You can make a whole separate argument, and that is that rather than trying to target an adversary ships beyond the range of our land based air power, you should just spend all the same money thickening up that inner ring. And so you really do just focus on land on land based air power, missiles, aircraft, and so on, and sea mines. And uh, you know, you could you could make an argument that if submarines do become unviable operationally, uh, then what you just do is say, okay, well that was that was nice while it lasted. It's not going to last anymore. We're going to fall back and do something else. Mm, okay. Um Malcolm Turnbull's position, mm. uh, which is a little bit different from Paul mm. Keating's, uh, mm. like you, he doesn't uh, go go quite to the sort of uh, uh, colourful rhetoric mm. that that Paul Keating uses. But he's still very strongly arguing that we should mm. have stuck with the mm. uh, the deal mm. that he struck with the French mm. uh, for the delivery of their mm. uh, submarines. Mm. They were, of course, down specced mm. uh, nuclear submarines that yeah. were going to be conventionally powered, which uh, you know, mm. goes to your point. 
Um, is that what we should have done in, in your view? Look, I, I, I don't. I think, I think uh, Malcolm Turnbull is right in his criticisms of the AUKUS proposal. I think he's wrong in his, in his defence of the French deal that we had for the attack class. I think that was a very ill-conceived project um, uh, because it required, the way the project played out, we committed ourselves to buying a French boat without having tied down how much they were going to cost, how they were going to perform, when they were going to be delivered, or how much Australian industry participation there was going to be. Now, in a properly run program, you tie all of those down before you sign the contract. Ideally, yeah. And Well, not ideally. I mean, that's what we did with the Anzac ships. That's what we did with the Collins-class submarines. And we did it by having two country, companies competing oh, right yes, up no. to the point that the contract was signed. And uh, But whereas with the competitive evaluation process that the uh, Turnbull government ran for, uh, the, 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 which resulted in the French submarine deal, uh, they had three 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 companies, and they down selected to one before any of that stuff was settled. So I think it was a very ill conceived um, project design. I also thought the boat was was uh, the, the actual design of the submarine was not very well considered. For example, we were buying a submarine that did not have any air independent propulsion capability, which is the which is a, a system which allows a conventional submarine to enjoy some of the advantage that a nuclear boat has of not having to come to the surface to drop, to to um, charge its batteries. Now, why in the 2020s you would invest in a conventional submarine which didn't have air independent propulsion is to me just a complete mystery. The other thing was that we were investing in a submarine that was still going to have lead acid batteries. Now, putting lithium or other advanced battery technologies into a submarine is not a trivial thing to do, apart from anything else. It's the fire problem that we're all becoming familiar with, with if these batteries go wrong. Mm. But, but, but major submarine manufacturers around the world, including the Germans, are putting lithium-ion batteries into submarines. And the result, of course, as we all know from our own experience, is you get a lot more power uh, per, per tonne. And so it just did seem to me that, that, the, that the boat we'd ended up trying to buy from the French was... Was didn't look to me like a good boat. I mean, the last point I'd make is that it always seemed to me to be very odd that when we went to replace the Collins, which had become, which was always a good boat, it had some problems, as all submarines do. We ironed those problems out. It was it's a perfectly good boat, and it's the boat we know better than any boat in the world. So the most natural thing to do, and what any other submarine country in the world would do, is to say, we'll take the boat we've got. And we'll evolve it. This was son of Collins. Yes, son of Collins model. And, you know, this was, this for for, for some of us, including me, all all the way back into the early 2000s, you know, it just seemed a no-brainer that what we do, we've got the boat we've got. And we do, you know, for example, what the Japanese have done, or for that matter, what the Germans have done, or for that matter, what the Americans have done, is that they take their design and they say, okay, that's worked well. Now, what hasn't worked so well? We'll fix that. We'll fix that. We'll change this. We'll upgrade this. We can do new things that we couldn't do before. But you do it on the basis of something you already know, whereas what we did with through all of the intellectual property that we'd built up over three decades and many, many billions of dollars in the Collins, just threw that in. We're going to throw that in the bin and and start again from scratch. Uh, that just never made any sense to me at all. And now we're doing it again. And now we're doing it. Well, that's the point. I mean, when the AUKUS was first announced, I said that the um, uh, that the French uh, submarine deal, and no fault of the French, I might say. I think the, the problems in the French submarine deal were all out, were all originated from us. But the, the, the French submarine deal 
uh, was a disaster, and AUKUS is worse. And now we've now we've seen the details of AUKUS. It's even worse than I thought it was going to be because apart from the else, we're now where you started this conversation. It's now got this gothic structure where we're going to be uh, operating three different kinds of submarines at once, and all of these different things all have to work in sequence over 30 years hmm. for us to get to the submarine force that we say we want, where we, where we could just go back to the start and start trying to build a son of Collins. We'd still get more submarines quicker than we're going to get through this process. Well, going back to the start is a good way to end, actually. And I'm going to end with a, a question that's been put to us. Uh, we just recently got a uh, an email address, uh, which you know specifically for the podcast, called democracy sausage at anu.edu.au. And I'll give that again in a moment. Um, but Jan Harley has been the very first person to use the, uh, the said uh, email address, and she's written in and she says. If, after sober consideration of the details of the AUKUS deal, devoid of flag-waving and back-slapping, the Australian people come to the conclusion that AUKUS doesn't actually serve our long-term security, diplomatic and social goals and needs, is it too late? Could uh, the new Labor government have rescinded or even delayed signing up, or was Anthony Albanese always fated to be the next fella down under? That's what uh, yeah. uh, Jan Harley asks. I'll, I'll let you have a crack at answering. Yeah, look, it's a real, it's a really good question. Um, look, it's it's not too late. I mean, um, Scott Morrison showed us when he scrapped the French deal that you can you can rip these deals up I especially mean, when you use national your, your own national interest as the, exactly, as the reason exactly. there's sort no, of no, no you, it, it trumps you, everything you, right? you, you, you can do this and of course you, you don't get away with it for nothing mm. I mean you know you lose billions of dollars but but if if you if you reach the conclusion as a sovereign country you reach the conclusion that this is not working for you then you can walk walk away from it but the fact is that um, that the, the way in which AUKUS has become so intertwined with our alliance with the United States. We couldn't walk away from it without doing very great damage to that alliance. And that might be a price that's worth paying, um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a fact we have to bear in mind. But the other point is that in order to walk away from it, it would require our new Labor government to really fundamentally rethink its approach to the whole drama that we're facing here in, the, in East Asia and the Western Pacific. Um, you know, they have essentially, I think, adopted their predecessor's policy. They have chosen a side. They've said, you know, what, how are we going to approach, you know, the US and China have got this epic contest for which of them is going to be the dominant power in our region. And our approach to that contest is to say, we're with the, we're with the, we're with the United States. Yeah. And that's really what AUKUS says. AUKUS says, we are with the United States. And uh, and the, the, the fact is that if we step back from AUKUS, We'll be stepping back from saying we're with the United States and we'll be asking a different kind of question. Now, I actually think that's what we should do. The question we should be asking ourselves is not whose side are we on, but what outcome do we want? And, you know, if you were confident that by supporting the United States, we were going to see the United States emerge as the dominant power in Asia for the next century as it's been for the last century, well, that wouldn't be a bad outcome. But that's not going to happen. You yeah. know, that's and that's the problem. I mean, I fear that. Anthony Albanese seems to be as convinced as uh, Scott Morrison was that America's going to win this one, and it, you know the, I, I just don't think that's a very good bet. Mm. 
Thanks, Jan Harley, for that question. And thank you, Hugh White. It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you about this. There's so many uh, aspects to it. We've had a, I think we've had, we've touched on some really important aspects and we can talk more about this in the future. I hope you're up for doing so. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. it's not going to go away. Well, is no, it? no, no, this one's <laughs> going to be with us for a long time. That's Democracy Sausage uh, for this week. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm Mark Kenny. Uh, this comes out of ANU, as you know, Australian National University, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next time. That email address again, if you want to give us any feedback or suggestions uh, of ideas for things to do, that email address is democracysausage, or one word, at anu.edu.au. And uh, get on that. Thanks very much, and talk to you again next week.